Well, good morning, you guys. I am so glad to be with you guys. My name is Jeff, and um, I, if those of you guys who call this, this place home, um, I have been gone for a lot this summer, and I've been doing some stuff. I'll get to that in a second. But we start a new series today called You Make the Call, that every one of us in here faces all kinds of decisions. We face all kinds of difficult things that we face every day, and we want to know how do we make the right choice. But before we get into that, let me just give you a couple things. Um, one of the things I have to tell you is... Um, I, I have missed you so much. For those of you guys, this is your home church. I have, those of you guys who, you know, you, this isn't your home church, I wish I could say I missed you. I just don't know you. Uh, so I'm sure you're wonderful people. I just don't know yet. But I was, I was gone. I do a lot in the summer. Um, I have a couple things that I get to do. And one of them is I get to go visit other churches. I get to go, one of the, you know, things that I've kind of been learning is, and you might have heard us say this before, we don't have everything figured out here. <laughs> Some of you are like, yeah, no kidding. No, I mean, we don't have everything figured out at our church. And one of the best ways to sort of figure out some other stuff is to go visit other churches. And I visited six other churches this summer, learned a lot, talked to a lot of people, got some great insight. Um, but really that comes at a cost to some, to some extent, at least I, I, it's a cost to me because I'm not with you guys. And so, um, but I, I have to tell you how much I miss you. And I'm so grateful that you give me some time to do some of those things. I have to spend some time with my family, with Amanda, my wife, uh, just the two of us. We went, so one of the trips we went just by ourselves to go look at some churches and what a gift that is. You don't know how much of a gift that is and what it, you really how much it impacts me and um, how, how excited it makes me to come back here. But so I really, really am grateful. Thank you um, so much. One of the things I want to highlight too is we had a, a bunch of guest speakers while I was gone. And um, it, the response that I got from you guys about the people who were here when I wasn't, A, made me very nervous that you don't need me. Uh, B, but uh, B, I'm so excited because um, I heard great responses. Uh, you know, I listened to Jim Burns last week who is just this, you know, I listened to his message. He was just like this sage, wise, kindly guy who understands stuff. He's been down the road and he's seen so many marriages and families and understands some stuff. And his insight is so good. And then, you know, uh, we had, two weeks ago, we had our high school pastor, Jordan, speak. And, um, you know, he looks like Jesus, literally looks like him, except he has glasses. And, you know, and, and he teaches like him. I mean, he just, there's just, that's the response we got. We have such a great staff. You know, we have some new hires. We have some new things happening. There's just so many great things happening. I'm so grateful for our church, for you guys, for our church staff. And so I'm really, really grateful to be back, too. It's really, really fun. I'm excited to be back today to be teaching and to be here. And so one person clapped, and I'm grateful for that person. Um, but today, <laughs> no, you know, that was, that's, no. <laughs> you can't do it now because now I asked for it. All right, thank you. Okay. Uh, but today, like I said, we're, 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 we live in a world where we have tons of questions. And all those questions have big, difficult decisions to be made. They have big answers. And they're not usually things that fall into like little cat. I mean, there's some decisions we have to make. Some of you are like, you know, where are we going to go to, you know, brunch after this or whatever. And, you know, some of you are like, you know, did they give us a mint here today because I have bad breath? Or do I take it or do I save it? Is this part of an object lesson? Or all these big decisions. No, it's just you have bad breath. Just take it. Just everybody around you will thank you. But some of you have bigger decisions that are like, when do I buy a car? When do I do this? Some of you are like a big relationship questions. There are questions that are in all of our life that are huge. And most of those decisions have nuance and subtlety to them. They aren't simply a matter of what's a right decision and a wrong decision. Those, those, those may be some of the decisions. Most of them have shades. They have gradients. They have difficult sort of ways to navigate them. And the, the, there's really only one thing to help us navigate those decisions. And it's not just right or wrong. It's not just a moral compass. So that's helpful. It's wisdom. It's wisdom. So let's do this. As we get into today's message, we start this new series called You Make the Call. Let's pray, and then let's see what God has for us today. Jesus, we are, uh, we are people who face decisions every single day. Every one of us faces tough choices. Some of us face tough choices because we've made bad decisions in the past and not sure how to move forward. 
Others of us are on the cusp of making a decision and we're not sure what we're supposed to do. Some of us, Father, are just living in such a place of paralysis because we have no idea about what we're supposed to do, but we're wrestling with big things. And if anything's true across the board in this room, it's that every single person in this room needs you. No matter how much we feel it, we all need you. Father, we ask today, as we consider what your word says, as we look at um, a bit of your Bible, that you would guide us. And so, Father, for just a moment, as is our custom, some of you I know are new, but as a custom as we start our service, we give to you a moment of stillness, a, a brief second in the, in the rest of our lives that is so busy and noisy, we take a moment to pause and to be still that you might speak to us about where we might need and seek your guidance, Father. Father, we need your help. We need your guidance. We need your hope. We need your love. We need your patience and your forgiveness. Might those be available to us today. Might they be apparent to us today. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, you got, as you came in, you got a bulletin in there. There's an outline. It's folded in half. If you want to take a look at that. If you want to follow along an outline, great. If you want to take notes, I encourage that. If you want to just watch the screen or follow along in your Bible, we'll be primarily in 1 Kings chapter 3. We'll be dancing around a little bit out of there, but I'll, I'll give you a sense. Now, I, I want to say, too, if you were here last week, Jim Burns talked about Solomon and, and a, a lot, which is, this is the, like, challenge for every person who teaches the Bible is what not to say. You know, like, there's lots of things we could say, a lot of things we can't say because we just run out of time. And so I want to actually take a page. I, in some ways, I wish we could have reversed. If you were here last week, it's worth listening to on the podcast, but I wish we could reverse the order of which we're going to do this because I'm going to talk about Solomon, who Jim talked about last week. But I want to do it, kind of do kind of dive a little deeper into what he said, but that's where we're going to be. And as you're turning your Bible or kind of getting your phone ready or whatever it is or getting your outline ready, let me just um, kind of give you a, a sense of kind of where we're going. I think for a lot of us, as we face tough decisions. We, we need some wisdom. We're looking for a way to get help. What we're, what we, a lot of times what we'll say is, I wish I was a little bit smarter. I wish I just had a little bit higher degree of intelligence because then I could make better decisions. And I was thinking about this and I was looking at sort of, I just came across like, some, a website of a bunch of geniuses who you would probably know who have made really dumb decisions or have done stupid things, just to give you a sense of how smart, you know, you, you can be and still make a dumb decision. Listen to this. There's Einstein is uh, reported. Now, who knows these are true, but it's on the internet, so it must be true. Um, but Einstein is reported to have not known his own address. And when he got into a cab one time, he just simply said, take me to Einstein's house. In the cab, he did not know where he lived, right? There's this story about Thomas Edison who once electrocuted an elephant, which, you know, I don't know how hard it is to do that, but he did that. We know that um, W.B. Yeats, who's like this famous poet, was not admitted to, he was applying for a job at a, at a college and did not get the job because he misspelled the word professor. We know that uh, Virginia Woolf, this accomplished author, once baked her own wedding, wing and wedding ring into a pudding. Ben Franklin nearly killed himself when he gave a turkey electric, electric shock. I mean, there's like all of these brilliant people who are so smart to do all these things that you go, really, I mean, like, it's once, it, one of the same websites said that Charles Darwin once ate an owl. We don't know why. He wasn't made out of a he just ate an owl. Like, I, whoops, I ate an owl. I don't know why it, that was a dumb thing, but you're not supposed to eat one, evidently. But there's all these super smart people who do all these incredibly dumb things, unquestionable genius, and they act stupid, and they do lame things. And the solution to our biggest issues, then, isn't that we're smarter. 
We're already full of a room full of super smart people. I mean, I've met some of you. Some of you, not so much. But a lot of you guys, incredibly smart people. There's a room full of people who are incredibly capable, genius people, and yet there is something that we need to help us navigate these big decisions in our lives, and it's not a bigger IQ. It's wisdom. It's wisdom. Look what it says in Proverbs 1. It's on your outline. It's on the screen, too. It says this. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance. The word guidance here, actually, in the Hebrew is closer to the word steer. In other words, that if we are, if we are people who are somehow connected with wisdom— our own lives can be steered in such, the way, such a way that they either avoid, you know, dumb, like stupidity, unwiseness, or foolishness, but that in some way we're actually guided, that we're not just haphazardly making our way through the world, hoping things work out well, that if we can garner some kind of wisdom, we have the capacity to have our lives be directed. And in such a way, what I want to do is I want to, we're going to spend some, you know, time the next couple of weeks talking about wisdom. But what I want to do is I want to, you know, kind of like what Jim did last week, I want to take a look at Solomon, who is the one credited with the book of, you know, one of these major books of wisdom in the Bible. It's a book called Proverbs. So I want to take a look at him, a little, uh, just one more shot at him, and then we'll kind of get into this. But here's what it says in 1 Kings chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 4. It says this, the king, this is Solomon, went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. So let me give you a sense of what's happening here. There's, at the time... This is before there's a temple in, in Jerusalem. There's no temple yet. Solomon's the guy who's going to build it. But there isn't a temple. Only, the only places where people would worship would be at places called high places. And what God had instructed his people to do is, hey, you know, you're going to make like kind of a mound out of the dirt, and that will, be a high, that will be a high place where you'll worship me. Now, every religion in the ancient Near East had a high place. You have to know this. This is going to be important in a little while. Solomon goes to the most high place, the highest place that they had, which is Gibeon. And he makes a sacrifice of a thousand burnt offerings. Now, this is a, this is a, lot, of stu- this is a lot of stuff to be sacrificing. What you have to know about a burnt offering is this. The way it's described in the Bible, a lot of you, this is like the joke all dads make who are bad at barbecuing. I don't, I don't do real well at barbecue. I just make burnt offerings. <laughs> you know, <laughs> sorry about that. Hey, thank you. That's a hilarious joke. You know, like whatever. Uh, but that's kind of the way, that, that's, we don't really know what it is. So here, let me tell you what it is. A burnt offering is a male animal of a flock being offered. This is an animal that is just about or has just crossed over from being a young animal to being someone that could, an animal, someone, an animal that could be sold at the market. So this is like now an animal has value. It's an animal that could be, it'll be worth something. And unlike other offerings that are offered on the altar, which then become like a barbecue, like a giant feast, like literally they would bar, they, you know, offer the altar and then everybody like, yeah, it's a feast. We get to eat that. Burn offerings are different. They're not eaten. These are really good, valuable things that are offered solely for the purpose of not being ever even, there's no even ability to eat them. They just get offered. Solomon, who has a ton of resources, offers a thousand burnt offerings, which means there's an extravagant display of worship here. Now what's important you have to catch is, it's not because Solomon's super rich. What you have to catch is that he's not, this isn't about the amount that's being you know, offered that makes it significant. It's about how extravagant his own heart is toward worship. I mean, the, the time alone to slay a thousand animals, place them on the altar, and watch all of it just kind of go away, like burn away, that would be an extravagance in worship. It means his, there's something about him that has his whole heart directed toward God. You're going to need to hold on to that. There's Solomon, his heart directed toward God, and he's offering all this stuff in worship. Verse 5, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. The implication here isn't just simply like, 
you know, ask and see if I'll give it to you. The implication in other translations, you'll see it, is a little bit more like, I'll give you whatever you want. Oh my, this is like hitting the God lottery jackpot. This is the one person who can give you anything. I mean, think about the list of things you could ask for. I'll give you whatever you want. Wow, really? Whatever I want? You know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff we could think about. I mean, the implication is you'll get it. There's, there's this couple, I don't know if you saw this, there's a couple in San Diego, I think San Diego County just won the California lottery, $180 million. Yeah. I hate those people, don't you? <laughs> but they won, the, they won the lottery. And they, you know, there they are coming out and talking to local news or whatever, and they're talking about stuff. And here's what they're going to do. They're going to take care of their kids and their grandkids. And you're like, yeah, I bet you are. And they're going to move a house. Sure you are. And they're going to give some money to their church. And I was like, I'd like to welcome them to Mariner's Mission Viejo. Just to, <laughs> we have a wall we'd like to take care of. And, you know, like, you know, just what. But I, I was at um, this, one of the things I got to do with my family this, this, um, this past summer is I got to, we, we're, we're trying to become a camping family. Some of you guys know this is one of the things we're trying to do because it's cheaper than doing anything else. Uh, you can create memories really cheap. And, you know, so we're, we're up, we're camping up in Carpinteria and, um, so it's me and my family and then the Irvine campus pastor. You know, Mariners is five campuses, so the Irvine campus pastor and I, and our, we're really good friends, and our kids are good friends. And so there's, there's seven kids total from five to 14 years old and, uh, and two dogs. And it's just like we have a little camping thing, and my, my buddy Kyle goes, hey, I'll buy ice cream for everybody, in which everyone was like, yay, ice cream. And so we go get ice cream. And they, he goes, you guys can get whatever you want. And so, <laughs> so <laughs> we ended up going to like this really kind of, swanky, over-the-top ice cream place. Like, it wasn't like we went to, like, you know, remember the old thrifty ice cream that was like a little suction cup of, like, perfectly proportioned cube of ice cream? Like, 85 cents. Oh, wow. You know, all triple scoop, and it's, like, that big. We went to some place that was kind of, like, swanky Santa Barbara place. Well, all these pictures of celebrities on the wall, and every scoop of ice cream is, like, you know, $12 or whatever. And so my, you know, my buddy's buying. I'm like, hey, kids, help yourselves, whatever you want. You know, Kyle's buying. Um, but but uh, my son... <laughs> Otherwise, I'd be like, can we just have a couple of tasters for my kids? Just a little tiny spoon. That'll be enough, thank you. This, all this is gross. We're out of here. Um, but he goes, what do you want? So my, my son, who has the, he has the biggest eyes in the world, like, oh my gosh. So he, <laughs> he orders a double scoop of mango sorbet on a chocolate-dipped waffle cone. It was like, that is a terrible decision. <laughs> so we had to like kind of rescue him, like, you know, this isn't really what you ought to do. Now, what he got, what the, and the person behind the counter is like, I don't care what you order. That's not my job is not to tell you how you're supposed to deal with it. I'm just supposed to serve it. I mean, like, he has every possible ice cream option avail to, available to him, and he chooses probably the worst combination that will form the worst flavor in your mouth you could possibly imagine, which means there has to be something that helps him to govern the decision. You can have whatever you want. You can have whatever you want. Ask for what you want, and I'll give it to you. This is what God says to Solomon. God asks the most entitled, privileged person in the world what he wants. You can have whatever you want. I mean, this is like a person who's used to having everything he could possibly want. This is a person who believes more than likely he probably deserves whatever he wants. And this question, you can have whatever you want. Ask it for me, and I'll give it to you. This is the question. It's the question we're faced with every single day of our lives. We're bombarded with advertisements that say, you can have everything you want, just ask for it. In fact, even if you can't afford it, buy it anyways and pay for it later. You should have it. Because we know the difference between wanting something 
and being entitled to it. And the world is trying to convince every single one of us that you are entitled. We are entitled to have everything. And we should have it. If you got the question, you could have everything, you could have anything you want. What would you do with the scenario? You've already answered that question, I think, in your head. Every one of us has already answered that question, what we would do. What do you aim your life at? What things do you think about? What worries or obsessions? What things? All the things that you're already thinking about, those are the things that you would ask for. Because you're already, all of us live in a world in which we're already told you're entitled to have these things and I want them and I should have them. And there's very little difference between want and ought and should. They're all the same. Do you want a new marriage? Are you entitled to that? Do you want a first marriage? Do you want a new job? Do you need a new relationship? Do you want better health? Do you want newer, cooler toys? Do you want uh, physical beauty? Do you wish, like I do, like I had less back fat when I'm at the pool? Like, this is embarrassing. You know, they could see it. You know, like, you can laugh about that. I'm 38. The kids make fun of it now. I was riding my bike with my, this is not too long, I'm riding my bike with my, this is a gross story, I'm sorry, but I'm riding, my, I'm riding my bike with my kids, and I got, they had one of those bike seats things in the back, the kids are in there, and when they're old enough, they just start putting their hands on my back, like, why is it squishy there, Dad? <laughs> you did this to me. That's what I said. No, but, you know, whatever. Some of us want a more comfortable life. We don't want an extravagant life. We just want a little bit more comfort. We're entitled to that, aren't we? Others of us want a nice vacation. Some of us want a big house. Some of us want to stop living tech, check to check. Some of us, we want our kids to have scholarships and be famous and do all these things. Wanting and deserving become kind of co-married because we already know what we want and we feel like we deserve those things. If you want it, you should have it. That's what our world says. God asks Solomon, the most privileged young person in the world, he says, what do you want? Ask me and I'll give it to you. And here's what he says, verse 6. Solomon answered, You've shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You've continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. He's talking about himself. Verse 7, Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I'm only a little child. He's 20 years old here, they estimate. And do not know how to carry, off my, carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people. You have chosen a great people, too numerous to count or to number. So verse 9, so give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong for who is able to govern this great people of yours. You can have anything you want and you said, I want to have wisdom? Seriously? Some of you guys are around 20 years old in here. Some of you remember being 20. Some of you don't remember it's been that long. My guess is very few of us in here would have gone, you know, I'm 20 years old. You know what I need? I can have anything I want. I want wisdom. Really? You'd be talk, talking about jet skis, being able to talk to those girls that you can't talk to because you're so nervous, because your palms sweat and you're afraid to talk, that kind of, the ability to have that kind of comp. You want money, you want all kinds of stuff. 20 years old, he says, I want wisdom. Now, there's a side note here. Some of you guys who are younger, college age, high school students, junior high, whatever, there's the, there is a sense here that you catch the wisdom here is someone who's very young. Typically what you see in the Bible, what you see in life, is that people who are far much older are able to have, are the people who sort of have a corner market on wisdom, and yet there's this 20-year-old who says, God, give me your wisdom. 
Solomon asked for wisdom. Verse 10, here's what the Lord says. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this, so God asked him, since you have asked for this, and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in, in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart that there will never, be, there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. See, God says you, you didn't ask for the big three. Everybody who is anybody in the ancient world asks for a long life, a lot of wealth, and death to their enemies. And he doesn't ask for any of those things. He just says, help me do this wisely. I have to tell you, is going away, you know, and being away from, from our church, you know, community for a little while and, you know, visiting other churches and seeing other things. And as I'm preparing some of this stuff to come back and teach, this is like the prayer I feel like I'm actually, I mean, it's a prayer I want to pray. But most of my life in so many ways is actually clouded with other things, other desires, other wants. But the fully mature version of myself, the one I really want to become is the one who says, God, give me wisdom that I might know what to do because I think I find myself actually wanting the other things more. I want, just like everybody, I believe the lies of the world that say you could have everything and you should have everything else that you want. You should have all that stuff. You should live without pain. You should live long and wonderfully. You should have tons of resources. And you should have nobody who doesn't like you. (laughs) But what I want to pray is I want wisdom. God, give me wisdom. Help me to know what to do. Help me to see what it is that I ought to do. Verse 13. Well, before I get to that, is it already on the screen? Yes, take that off the screen because now everybody read it. Shoot, it's my fault. Um, take it off the screen. Right now, take it off the screen. There you go. Thank you. Oh, such a big moment I was going to build up to. You know when you're watching a, uh, an infomercial, not that you try to watch them, but if you watch an infomercial and they're, te- they're selling you the magic bullet or whatever it is they're selling you or a knife set or a pillow pet or whatever else it is or the egg wave or whatever other things I'm trying to think of, but they're trying to sell you that stuff and right before they get to the point where you're about to change the channel, where you're about to maybe order it or not order, you're vacillating between yes and no. It is 1995. They say something else. What do they say? But wait. But wait. There's more. We're going to double your order for free. Oh my gosh, I get double the useless garbage for free. This is so great. I can act. This is such good news. It's $400 for shipping and handling, 1995. Just, you know what? Wait, I'm sorry. I missed that. This must be a good deal. Man. Whatever. Now. There is this moment in the passage here. God has said, what do you want? Solomon says, I want wisdom. And God says, that's so great, I'm going to give you wisdom. And then there's this other moment in verse 13 where she says, but wait. There's more. Some of you are playing. It's okay. Still, we have the drum line. Bring them back in here. We'll get them up. But wait. There's more. Hold on. Here's what he says, verse 13. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, free of shipping and handling. Both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. In other words, there's a little, there's a lot going on here. You have to catch this. But there's, what you have to understand is only a wise person should be entrusted with these kinds of things. Like a long life and wealth and stuff like that. And some of you are like, I'm old and I'm rich, so I must be wise. First of all, nearly every person in this room would, always, would identify themselves as not rich. Everybody kind of identifies themselves as sort of middle class. Nobody wants to be identified as someone who's rich for whatever reason, regardless of how much money you make. But for those of you who do, who are rich, you go, I must be wise then. Let me give you a word of caution. 
It's in the text. It's in this passage. I want you to see this. But here is Solomon who's given not only wisdom, but he's also won the showcase showdown. He's won the trip to Mazatlan and the year supply of turtle wax. He's won everything. He's got everything he could possibly need. And there's something else in this passage, though, that gives us kind of an asterisk on wisdom. There's like a little tiny thing, and there's no asterisk in the Hebrew language. They don't have that punctuation mark. So Solomon gets these things. I'll get the asterisks in a second. He gets these things. He has wisdom. Can we agree that having something and actually utilizing it or knowing how to use it are two totally different things? Having wisdom and utilizing it in every area of your life, those are two totally different things. Can we not agree? Smart people do dumb things. Really wise people, they don't employ it correctly. They do some dumb things too. So here's this person known for his wisdom, and there's an asterisk in this passage. And like I said, there's no asterisk in Hebrew. You have to use the text to find it. It's in the very beginning of the passage. It's the very beginning of chapter 3. Here's what it says in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given to him by his father David. If we stop right there, you could just say, well, there you go. That's way to go, Solomon. Great job. Except, part B. Can you go to that scripture on screen? I'll put it, I'll read it. Except that he offered sacrifices and burnt incense on the high places. Remember, high places is where every single, per, every single ancient Near Eastern religion worshipped. Solomon followed everything his dad did except asterisk. He worshipped on those high places and he offered sacrifices and incense on those high places. Now this is before he's about to ask for wisdom. The next verse is where he's worshipping and offering a thousand sacrifices in the most high place and all that stuff. Which means there's going to be something that happens to Solomon down the course of his life as we read the story in 1 Kings and the same one, parallel one in Chronicles. You have this sense that there's going to be something that's going to be his undoing. So fast forward a bit. Some of you were here last week. You heard Jim talk about this. And I want to read to you a kind of a long passage, but it, you'll get the point of it. So just tune with me. Here's Solomon. Fast forward. Remember, he's a young guy, and he asks for wisdom. And now he's old in chapter 11. And here's what it says. King Solomon, beginning verse 1. However, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, and Hittites. They are from na- nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. So Solomon's having all these relationships with all these different women. He had 700 wives of royal birth. These are all, these are all you know, marriages by way of kind of treaty. And 300 concubines in his wives. So there's 1,000 now women in his life. And his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. As the heart of David his father had been, he followed Ashtoreth, the god of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Let me stop right here. The gods being named here, just really quickly. Ashtoreth is a, is a goddess who is worshipped. Um, she is a, a, um, she's a goddess worshipped in sex. There is, that's kind of the way people worshipped her on a high place. They would go to these places, sometimes called the groves, where there was just, you know, tall trees that are limbless trees. They would just strip down, and that's where they'd worship her. Um, people, one of the things that would, would take place at Ashtoreth worship would be that there would be fortune-telling, and then there would be temple priestesses and temple prostitutes, and that would be, you know, worship prostitutes. That's how people worshiped. Sex. 
And then this other god that's named here, this god of Molech, which you'll see his name, another, he has another name too called Chemosh, and he's always called Detestable. These two gods are worshipped with human sacrifice. Solomon, so rich in wisdom, who asks for wisdom, is a guy whose heart is turned away from the stuff that he originally intended to be a part of. Keep on reading, verse nine or verse six. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. On a hill in East Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab. Some people believe this hill in the east of Jerusalem is the Mount of Olives. If that makes sense to some of you. And for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites, he did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. Why don't you just catch something here? For a lot of us, especially those of you who are like investigating, trying to figure out, do I want to be part of church? I don't know. And, you know, these people, what are they like? And could I be part of this community? Whatever. Some of the things people say who are curious about, about God is they'll say, if he would do something kind of like awesome, like appear to me, he would, you know, show up in the, dry, like in the passenger seat of my car, like, oh, hey, Jesus, you know. No, I'm just Jordan. I'm the high school pastor. No, like, but, you know. But if, <laughs> if, but if, you're sit, if you're in some capacity, you're, you could have some kind of encounter with God. It's a face-to-face lightning bolts and fireworks moment where you'd go, oh, yeah, okay, cool. Now I'm in. What's being said here is Solomon had a face-to-face encounter twice with God, and he still forgot him and turned away from him. There is something here that's sort of, you have to kind of, some fine print here on wisdom. I want you to notice initially Solomon offered a thousand sacrifices, a thousand burnt offerings on the high place. Now Solomon has a thousand wives, and he's offering sacrifices on a bunch of high places. His heart has been turned. Somehow all of what guided him initially has been lost. He's been caught up in everything else. In all of his wisdom, he wasn't able to do something. See, there's, there's this asterisk next to wisdom. And I, I actually put it on your outline. You can see it says the fine print. And then the very bottom of the outline, there actually is the fine print asterisk there. I don't want you to see this. Here's just what it says. There's a serious risk of injury when wisdom is self-administered. Now, honestly, you have to, we all have to make decisions on our own. These are, you know, we have to employ wisdom to make decisions. That's part of our own life for sure. But if we make wisdom choices in isolation, we're doomed to start doing what Solomon did. No matter how much we know about what wisdom is, if we make these decisions 100% in isolation, we're doomed. We're just doomed. Some of you have determined that the most important thing you can do in your life is prove your own independence and live or die on making my own decisions. That is unwise. It's unwise. If you want to be the father that you intend to be, if you want to be the friend that you intend to be, if you want to be a person who is directed and guided and steered by wise kinds of living, you cannot do it alone. For a while it will work out. We're able to kind of guide ourselves for a while. You can see that Solomon lasted a pretty long time until his old age here. You have this. And then when he got old, he kind of started to get a little sideways. But there's a pathway getting him there. You have big questions. We talked about this. You have big issues you wonder about. You wonder about who you, from everything that ranges from who you take to prom, high school students, to who you marry, some of you who are older, 
to how much should we stay with this person who has wronged us, to questions about job and about ethics and about all these other things in our lives. And we wonder, what are we supposed to do? And if we do those things in isolation, we're doomed. There is a thing that we have. It's a mechanism. It's not perfect like everything. Nothing in, this, nothing in our church is perfect. We haven't figured everything out. No question about that. We have a mechanism. If you are a person who goes, I'm tired of repeating the same dumb decisions in my life. I'm tired of living life on my own, and I'm tired of walking down this road, and I don't want to do that anymore. I care too much about the people around me to continue to do this. We have a mechanism. It's called Rooted. It's not perfect. It's a facilitated group of people who talk about their real-life stuff in really honest ways. It's facilitated by regular people who have made regular kinds of normal kinds of person decisions that not all have been good. But we get to be in it together. It's not a teacher group. There's not like a teacher and then you fill in the blanks and now you have enough knowledge. It's about a dialogue. People who have been in church for years say, I've never been a part of something like this. It changed the way I think about church community. People who have never been a part of church say, my gosh, I just got into this thing and I'm finally able to realize I'm not alone. You see, wisdom is so, so poorly administered when it's all by ourselves alone. Ultimately, the decision is on us, but it doesn't have to be fully alone. Secondly is this, it's the other part of the fine print, which is that wisdom is very dangerous if it's done apart from God. If it's done apart from God. There is this picture you catch in the very beginning. Remember, you have this comparison between the, the Solomon at the beginning who's offering these sacrifices, this extravagant display of worship, and God appears to him and says, I'll give you whatever you want. And then the end where there's Solomon's no longer really worshiping his own God at God's own place. He's worshiping and enabling the worship of a thousand different kinds of gods by these people who have turned him away from his first love. And God begins to say, if you read the rest of the Solomon's story, I'm taking the things away that I had promised you because you are proving yourself to have wandered away from me. You're no longer wise. What orients Solomon to wisdom to right living, to everything else is worship. Worship. Now, there are lots of ways we worship. The book of Romans describes, as the Apostle Paul says, hey, worship is about our whole life. Our whole life is a living sacrifice. You know, so there's thousands of sacrifices on the altar. Just be the living sacrifice yourself. That's right. Every aspect of our life is an act of worship. But there are times in which worship is a celebrated thing. When people come together, the Bible describes it in a couple different terms. A lot of times it's accompanied in music or singing. And so that's why we do it every single week. It's not like, for some of you, I hope this isn't you, you know, but for some of you, you might be thinking, well, you know, the worship is kind of the background music at the beginning, and then we kind of, you know, there's like some stuff, and then the guy teaches, and I try to endure that, and then there's some exit music with the worship, and that's kind of how I think about it. I want you to understand. I actually think in some ways, in some capacity, we have it reversed. Worship is our response to God, and it is my job to help you elevate what is in your life that God is trying to elevate in your own life, that we might respond to him with energy, enthusiasm, because it's then that our hearts get directed, that we begin to have our lives steered. It's worship. Worship. Now, I don't want anybody to try and offer a thousand burnt offerings up here, like, I, you know, he said worship, and I'm going to come and slay a thousand animals or whatever. It's like, it's not like crazy. But some of us are so afraid of what it might mean to actually be involved in worship. We're so terrified. So we, you know, we're told to stand, so we stand like we're being disciplined. 
I'm standing now. The guys playing the music. It's so loud. I wish I would have got the earplugs in the back. I love that it's loud. And trust me, you guys, I want you to know, I will, I, I, we're not going to turn it down. Okay, some of, you, some of you email me all the time. Can we turn that down? No, we have earplugs for you. Just want to let you know. And the reason why is because I have a terrible voice. <laughs> I have a terrible voice. Because worship is not about how I sound. It's about what is the direction of my own heart. So I sing. I sing loud. Terribly. Awful. It's awful. Like, I make sure. Is this double, triple off when I turn the microphone off? Because I don't want anybody to hear what I'm saying. But I want to sing. Because something happens to the direction of my own heart when I sing. Some of you are like, I'm not singing. I'm not a singer. You know? I, I, you know some of you are like, I didn't want to sing because I have bad breath. Now you got a breath mint. <laughs> Done. How pleasant is that? Some of you are, you know, you, you're, you'll sing, but you kind of mumble it. You're afraid of being seen as someone who sings. I get that. I, I was that way. It's dark in here. Sing. Some of you are being asked to do this thing where we'll, the, sometimes the words of the song will be like, you know, I lift my hands up or whatever. And it's kind of like, I'm not lift, I lift my hands in my pockets. <laughs> I'm not doing that. You, the knowing laughter, I get it. You know. <laughs> I'm that guy. I'm so self-conscious about everything from body odor to like, oh, sorry about, you know. I'm conscious about that to how does this appear to do I really want this? I feel like over the past couple of years, God is saying to me, why are you not trying this? What's the worst that will happen? People in your church will go, that guy worships. Shame. I mean, what? Is that what's going to happen? Why am I so self-conscious? So I raise my hand. I raise one hand sometimes. Occasionally I'll go crazy and raise two hands. It's like... The wheels are off. <laughs> In a moment, you're going to get a chance to respond. We're going to talk a lot about wisdom over the next couple of weeks. I just wanted you to, I want you to understand that the framework for wisdom, like it or not, is worship. It means we come before with this extravagant display. One of the things that happens in, this, in the burnt offerings, there's a lot that's in there, but one of the things that's communicated in the Bible is that people would place their hands on the thing being offered. And they would, in effect, what they would do is they would say, would, the, would this animal, without blame, take on all of the stuff that I got going on in my life that isn't good, that is unwise or foolish or sinful or whatever, and would it be offered? I give it up. It's an act of humility. I was telling Ethan, um, I, you know, as I'm visiting churches and stuff like that, I get to be a stranger, which is so great. You know, people, there's some churches I went to where people are like, hey, if you're new, why don't you stand up and wave your hand? And I was like, oh, those new people should stand up. I'm like, I hate doing that stuff. I hate all that stuff. I'm not standing up. I'm not going to be the new person acknowledged. I just never like that. But I'm, but I'm singing, and, I'm, and I, the songs are, there's, there's lines that literally say, I raise my hands up or whatever. And I'm like, all right, I raise my hand up. And it was like literally in that moment to change the posture of my body, change the way my heart was oriented. I don't know why. Some of you are like, that's not true. My heart's already oriented right or whatever. Well, just try it. Here's what I want to say. I'll give everybody a next step. Some of you who have never sang a word because you're either self-conscious or you don't, you know, whatever it might be, make a sound. Sing. Say one word. Whatever it is. You know, sing. Sound. Whatever. I don't care what it is. Make a sound. Okay? <laughs> try that. Okay? It'll be great. Some of you... You know, you're like, you, you, you barely can look up. You barely, you're standing up. Your hands are in your pockets. All I want you, this might be the step for you. You ready for this? Some of you are like, he's going to tell me to jump up and down or do a dance or something. This is your step. You ready? That. That's all. That's all I want you to do. Like, if I'm usually this, like, I, I refuse to participate, just take your hands out of your pocket and put them there. 
For some of you, when you, heat, when you see things, and this might be raising your hands, all you got because you're like, I'm not doing something crazy like raising my hand. I'd never do that in here. It's a church. <laughs> Who raises their hands? It's a church. Okay. Some of you might need to, you know, like this might be raising your hand. Some of you, like at the end of our service, you're with us, and I know some of you are resistant even to that idea. At the end of our service, we pray and I have you guys hold your hands out. <laughs> some of you are like, <laughs> like a little tiny cup of your hands is like. <laughs> this, is, this, by the way, doesn't look awkward at all. It's kind of like a Mick Jagger, you know, like, anyway. <laughs> Some of you high school students, Mick Jagger, he was the same era as Beethoven. It's a long time ago. He's a classical artist. Uh, some of you need to hold your hands out. Because there's something humbling about doing something you don't know what will happen next. Hold your hands out. Some of you who do this, maybe put a hand up, put two hands up. Varying degrees of altitude. You know, we talk about low-flying aircraft. might chop your hand off. Just trust it. The way our heart is oriented toward wisdom is in worship. Some of you have never tried this word. Some of you who are new are like, I'm not doing any of that stuff. Just enjoy your mint. That's okay. That's fine. But if you really want to understand what God has for you in wisdom, it begins in worship. I, this morning as our team was getting together and we're praying and stuff for you guys and praying for the service, Mike, um, who you know, was up here earlier talking about offering and praying for us, he read this quote I thought was brilliant. All the language outside says homecoming. We have the, the drum line, which is like my favorite thing I've ever seen in my life in a worship service, by the way. He, here's what he reads out of this book. Worship is the ultimate expression of relationship with God. Worship is coming home. As the saying goes, within each of us lies a God-shaped hole, one that cannot be filled by religious ritual, but only, having, but only a living relationship with him. The word most often used in the New Testament for worship, 66 times in all, is the Greek word proskuneo, which, which can be translated to mean to come towards, to kiss. It means to come to a place of tenderness, to touch the heart of God and to allow him to touch our hearts. Worship is praise. Worship is celebration. Worship is intercession. But worship ultimately is adoration. And so the only action step you have, the only thing I want you to do, so we're going to get into more specifics over the next couple of weeks, is to worship. Would you pray with me? The band will come up and we will worship together. Lord Jesus, we are in need of hearts that are oriented toward you such that we might have wisdom. More often than not, Jesus, we want wisdom without you. We try it all the time. We want our own life and our own decision. We're most often believing the lies of the world that says you can have whatever you want. You should have whatever you want. And we want what we want. Father, might we have the courage to seek not just what we want, but your wisdom. Lord, would you give us guidance? We face big decisions. Some of them are emotional decisions. Some of them have been plaguing us for years. Some of us, there's decisions ahead of us that we already knew what to do, but we've been resisting it. Father, would you break through that, and would you give us the guidance you so promise us? Might we have the humility to raise an arm, to place our hands at our side, to come forward for prayer if we need prayer? To say we don't have it all together, might that be an act of our worship? Not simply that we sing songs, not simply we sit in a room where songs are played, but that we respond because it can direct our own hearts. Might we feel the freedom to sing out loud? Might we feel the freedom to worship you, to adore you, to come home? That we might discover your great love, your great tenderness, and the great hope that you give to us in you, in Jesus. And so, Jesus, we pray to you that we might worship, that our hearts might be directed. It is in your name, Jesus, that we pray and we worship.
Amen.